from the beginning to the end, it's changing how families think about mental health and how they think about urgent mental health, just like they think about urgent physical health. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue in downtown Milwaukee, this is Wisconsin's Morning News. Here's your host, Vince Vetrano. Coming up on 712 this Friday morning and the spring, not the general election, which is coming up in early April, but the spring primary is fast approaching. That's right, Vince. And uh, if you followed primaries in the past, uh, it can be often difficult to know what's coming up on your ballot. If you hear about the primary, but you're wondering, oh, do I need to head out to the polls? Is something coming up now that part of that's being an informed voter? That's kind of what we've been doing here on WTMJ for the last month or so as part of our Decision Wisconsin coverage. We've been previewing those elections that will be on the ballot on February 20th. And this week, I'm taking a look at what's coming up for voters in Washington, Ozaki, Racine, and Kenosha counties. If you vote for me, all of your wildest dreams will come true. The 2024 election cycle begins in earnest on February 20th. That's when voters will head to the polls for the spring primary. All month long on WTMJ, we're providing a summary of what you can expect on your ballots when you cast your votes on the 20th. Our first stop today is in Washington County, where just three races feature primaries on Tuesday. In the town of Erin, five candidates are running for town board supervisor. Bob Bruja, Pat Landon, Michael Stapleton, Elaine Gagne, and Ken Preisgen. In Hartford and Germantown, voters will make their initial selections for open school board seats. Over in Ozaki County, just one race will be on the ballot Tuesday. County District 17, which represents much of western Cedarburg, will elect a super Supervisor between candidates Peter Eisenhower, David Irish, and Jack Arnett. Next up is Racine County, where voters in Racine Aldermanic Districts 2 and 4 will choose representatives for the city's Common Council. District 2 voters will choose between incumbent Molly Jones or challengers David Zuper, Xavier Kendall-Golden, or Tyler Townsend. And District 4 features all new faces, Keith Fair, Jordan Lawrence, David Mack, and Jacqueline Schrader. Additionally, the Waterford Union School referendum mentioned last week is also up for a vote in Racine County. On the docket is over 91 million dollars in upgrades to the district's high school, the largest school referendum in the state. Voters in Burlington will also decide on whether or not to support an $11 million referendum to cover increased operational and maintenance costs. Finally, in Kenosha County, residents of the county's namesake city will choose who replaces Mayor John Antaramian. Candidates include Andreas Meyer, Mary Morgan, Elizabeth Garcia, Kelly McKay, Lydia Spotswood, Gregory Bennett Jr., Tony Garcia, Corey Elijah, and David Bogdala. Additionally, Kenosha Aldermanic District 3 is up for grabs between Tanya McLean, Jen Mikulski, and Courtney Marshall, while Kenosha County Circuit Court Branch 3 pits Heather Iverson, William Michael, and Frank Gagliardi against each other. Last but not least, voters in the Wilmot School District decide the fate of a $7.5 million referendum. The deadline for early voting and absentee voting has now passed for many, and the focus shifts to day of registrations. Voters should bring their valid government-issued ID card, along with proof of residency, such as a phone or utility bill, to their polling place on election day. And reminder, all votes must be in by 8 p.m. Tuesday in order to count towards the final tally. Adam Roberts, WTMJ News. So there you go. Coming up, February 20th, Decision Wisconsin 2024 kicks off in earnest. 7.15, we got sports with Brandon Snide coming up next. 
time for an update from the Gruber Law Office's One Call, That's All Sports Desk. Here's Brandon Snide. The struggles continued on for the Milwaukee Bucks on Thursday night in their final game before the All-Star break. The Bucks had a last-second chance to tie the game and send it to overtime, but they ultimately fail, falling to Memphis by a final score of 113-110. to He's into the front court. Almost lost it at midcourt. Now he will. He ran into his own man. Lopez, though, runs back there to pick it up. Gets it ahead to Lillard. Fires up the half-court heave of the horn. It's off the mark. And that's how this game ends. Dave Kane on the call right here on WTM Jazz. Milwaukee loses for the fifth time in their last seven games after the after the game head coach Doc Rivers with some strong words for the mental state of some of his players in the team's latest loss. First play, we, we gamble for the 50th time in the corner. Guy drives. Uh, we have to help leads to a three. We come back in this, uh, on our set. Uh, two guys forget what we're running. Then we miss the shot, and then nobody gets back. That's how we start out the third quarter. That tells you all you need to know about where our heads were. Um, you know, um, we, we had some guys here, and we had some guys in Cabo. The Bucks on a bit of a break now. Speaking of Cabo, their next game won't be until next week, Friday, <laughs> following the All-Star break. Speaking of All-Star break, which begins tonight, the Bucks will send two starters to the big game being played in Indianapolis on Sunday. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver joined the Pat McAfee show this week ahead of the All-Star weekend. He talked about the possible expansion in Vegas as well as what fans can expect for the game. I know sometimes there's criticism that there's not enough defense played in All-Star games, that it's, it's not a game. Again, I think it's going to be more of a game this year in Indianapolis. I think the guys recognized that last year we needed to do more. I mean, people want to see a little bit of defense, they, but, yeah. but, they, but they, they, don't, they, know, they know it's not a playoff game. Nobody wants to get hurt, but I think we can have a little bit of both, but also make sure everybody remembers this game's about joy and fun. Some of the things you were just talking about, about teamwork, guys coming together, that, that's all part of what this is. Celebrity game will tip off the festivities tonight beginning at 7 p.m. And lastly, we'll head over to women's college hoops where a new NCAA women's basketball scoring leader took center stage last night. The Clark, logo three, got it! 22 is now number one. Caitlin Clark is the NCAA's all-time scoring leader in women's basketball history. The call from Rob Brooks from Learfield as Caitlin Clark would finish the game with the career-high 49 points. They would beat Michigan 106-89, and with 3,569 points and counting Vince, she might not be done yet. She is just 99 points away from breaking Pistol Pete Maravich's men's NCAA Man, that could scoring happen. record, which I think is going to happen. I mean, she averages 32 points a game. <laughs> That's good math. So she's she's on she's on track. Hey, coming up, if you have a child who is in need of mental health services, it can take weeks, if not months, to get in to see someone. We're going to tell you how a new facility in Kenosha that is opening in just minutes means to address that situation. That is coming up next on Wisconsin's Morning News. 7.23 on Wisconsin's Morning News this Friday morning. So your child wakes up in the middle of the night, ear infection or a serious illness. Maybe you think, all right, we need to go to urgent care right away. Not going to wait for the doctor in the morning. A walk-in style, don't need appointment, but need treatment now type of facility. But sure. we largely don't have this for mental health crises right now. It can take weeks or months for a young person to be seen. And with the recent horrifying report that in 2023, one in 10 Wisconsin teens attempted suicide... 
The need for what is about to be announced is only growing. Minutes from now, Children's Wisconsin will cut the ribbon on a new walk-in clinic for mental health services. This is happening in Kenosha. And we're joined live this morning in the Tri-County Contracting Hotline by Amy Herbst. She's the Vice President of Mental and Behavioral Health at Children's Wisconsin. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. I know you're only minutes away from uh, having to take the podium there for this big announcement, so we certainly appreciate you spending a few minutes with us. You know, normally a ribbon cutting is a joyous affair, right? But that joy a bit muted this morning because it's so sad that we need this. Tell us about how this new clinic will work. Yes, thank you for covering this. So our new clinic for uh, walk-in mental and behavioral health concerns will be available in Kenosha. Uh, Right now we're going to open Tuesday through Fridays. Uh, 1 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. And essentially um, how this will work is families will uh, be able to determine for themselves that they're having an urgent mental health care need and they feel like they cannot wait for care uh, maybe tomorrow or weeks or months from now and they need some help immediately. And that's all it takes. They can walk into the clinic. They don't need a reservation. They don't need a referral and they will have available to them social workers and mental health professionals that will be able to work with them right in the moment and make sure everybody's safe and getting connected to the care they need. Yeah, Amy, whether it's a sore throat or something like a mental health crisis, it's so hard for parents to know when to call the doctor. So on either side of the equation. So can you walk us through a little bit about how you know your child, you know, whatever your child is struggling with, how do they A, even need professional intervention, or is this something we handle at home? And then B, whether it's something they would seek out an intervention at a clinic like we're talking about, or maybe instead, this is something we'll follow up with our pediatrician on and book an appointment down the road. How do we know the difference? Sure. Um, That's such a great question, and it's hard to know the difference, which is exactly why we are opening the second mental and behavioral health walk-in clinic. We tell parents uh, that they know best. And so if they feel like they really need something urgently, that's all it takes. You're not going to be wrong if you reach out to access services in the mental and behavioral health walk-in clinic. And from there, we can help you uh, get connected to additional resources that you might need long-term. So really, we say to parents, trust your gut, and if you believe that this is something that you need, that's that's good enough. Uh, You are probably right. And we can be there for you in the moment. And then until you get access to the long-term care that your child needs. Amy, I know in the last five to 10 years specifically, we made a lot of strides, I believe, in just having conversations about mental health more so than we did in the past. But we still have a long way to go. I know last year, uh, Governor Tony Evers said 2023 would be the year of mental health. So in what ways are these walking clinics sort of helping to continue breaking that stigma that's existed for so long when it comes to teens or young people wanting and desiring to seek out mental health assistance? Yes. So the walk-in clinics are really helping families to see that mental health is health. And to the point made earlier, you would access urgent care for your child if they had an earache or maybe a sore throat or Maybe you're worried that they um, have a sprain or a broken bone, and it's the same thing. Um, You can say, you know what, I'm feeling like my child might be having an urgent mental health need. That's health, and I have this resource available to me to go to now. So really, from the beginning to the end, it's changing how families think about 
mental health and how they think about urgent mental health, just like they think about urgent physical health. That's Amy Herbst. She's Vice President of Mental and Behavioral Health at Children's Wisconsin. They're about to open this new clinic in Kenosha that'll be open on a walk-in basis. Amy, thank you so much. I know you got uh, the news conference to get to, so I really appreciate you spending some time with us ahead of that this morning. Absolutely. Thank you for covering this story. Bucks go limping into the all-star break. Brandon Snide has that in sports at 745. Nearly a year after Japan's new flagship H-3 rocket failed mid-air, the country's aerospace agency set to try again. This comes as both the nation has recently entered into a recession And the industry has been dominated recently by the U.S., Russia, France, and China. After Japan was forced to abort the maiden launch of its H-3 rocket last year, the country is trying again from the Tanegashima Space Center in southern Japan. The H-3 is designed to be price competitive with Elon Musk's SpaceX rocket by slashing launch costs in half, in part by sourcing commercial-grade components from Japan's network of automotive parts suppliers. Lucy Craft, CBS News, Tokyo. <laughs> I'm sorry, right? And I know these are unmanned craft, but if, if they are, ever get into the manned space business, they're like, where, how, how did you build this? Oh, I got some parts from AC Delco over there. I got a guy <laughs> for you. Right. I got a guy. I got a parts dealer. Not to be, I don't know if they're correlated or not. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if they're correlated, Vince, but it is interesting that they're relaunching this and saying we're going ahead with it as we're on the heels of the whistleblowing, of course, from yesterday that, oh, by the way, uh, there's apparently going to be maybe a nuclear warhead hanging above the skies and Russia's kind of behind it. We've got more on that coming up at 7.50 this morning with ABC News. News is sponsored by Annex Wealth Management's Money Talk. That's heard Saturdays at 10 right here on WTMJ. It's cold, folks. <laughs> Actually, tonight's lowest. Did you catch that? Yeah, I did. Moore's? Tonight's low down to 13. Could see wind chills at 5 below. Don't worry, as he said, back up to near 50 degrees on Tuesday. The ride never ends. 25 right now in Milwaukee. Coming up just after 8 o'clock this morning, segment I've been wanting to do for some time, and it's finally, the pieces all finally came together. I have been greatly concerned about the collision between the increased demand for electric power and at the same time calls for reducing or even eliminating the use of fossil fuels. Like, how are we going to produce enough electricity. And I also remain convinced that folks don't know where electricity comes from. Not now if you're an intelligent person listening to this program, you're probably not among them. Mm-hmm. But right, you know, just this idea of like, well, okay, we we, do, we want battery powered cars because they don't pollute. Well, at the source they don't, but that electricity doesn't come from the wall. It's not magic. It is still generated by a power plant that Still across the country, if you look nationally, some 80% of our power is still coming from fossil fuels. So like this lack of understanding about where electricity even comes from. I've got two guests coming in from We Energies, including the executive vice president of planning for the company. And they're going to explain to us how we're going to power the future in Wisconsin. How can we simultaneously increase our demand for electric power and also reduce fossil fuel construct, uh, consumption? Do we have enough power plants? Do we need to build more? Can wind and solar really replace coal and gas? To that point on solar, I'm really curious to talk with we because we, of course, just had the announcement yesterday that that landfill down by Milwaukee Mitchell, there are plans to convert that into a giant solar field, which could be part of the equation. But obviously, you know, if you're reaching 25% of renewable energy, that's not all coming from solar. To your point, it comes from somewhere. And I'm curious, too, because to your again, to your point, I don't think people really realize just what goes into their clean energy. Yeah. So, and, and then 
oh, by the way, how much is all this going to cost? Are we going to have to pay more to facilitate all of this? So those questions answered coming up just after 8 o'clock this morning. Brandon does the sports next. Time for an update from the Gruber Law Office's One Call, That's All Sports Desk. Here's Brandon Snide. After getting boat raced earlier in the week, the Milwaukee Bucks in their final game before the All-Star break fell to Memphis on Thursday night. This one by a final score of 113 to 110. Vince Williams, now they work it to Jackson in the corner. Jackson fires away from three, and he puts Memphis back ahead by two. Dave Kane on the call here on WTMJ as the Bucks with that loss last night now fall to 35-21 and 21 on the season. Giannis led the way with 35 points and added 12 assists. Damian Lillard added 24, but he struggled to bet. He was just 7 for 24 from the field. And after the game, head coach Doc Rivers acknowledged the struggles from his starting point guard. It has been. Um, you know, even before that, I think uh, the month of January, right, uh, or whatever, he's, he's struggling from the three a little bit, but I'm not that concerned by it. He, he didn't forget how to play. So, you know, we talked about it when I came. He'd been, he was struggling coming into that, and and he still is, but I, I, I swear I'm not that concerned about him. I don't like the turnovers. I will say that. we uh, we got to get away from the turnovers. Bucks on a bit of a break here. They're back in action next Friday following this weekend's All-Star festivities. The offseason in the NFL and in Green Bay is currently underway. After coming up just short in the NFC's divisional round, the expectations for 2024 are now sky high in Titletown. And if you ask ESPN's Mike Greenberg, don't be shocked to see the Packers playing in the big game this time next season. I have a feeling about these Packers. Second half of this season, Jordan Love was as good as any quarterback in the entire NFL with the exception of no one. He went into Detroit and beat the living daylights out of the Lions in their own building on Thanksgiving. He went into Dallas and humiliated the Cowboys in their own building in the playoffs. And you know what? He had San Francisco dead to rights the next week. And he did it in his first season as a starter. They're going to get better. If I had to pick a sneaky flyer to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl next year, I would go to Green Bay. The NFL new league year all set to begin on March. I don't know 13th. how sneaky that flyer is either. Not anymore. You're not going yeah, to sneak up on anybody uh, starting next year. Lastly, we'll head over real quick, Vince, to women's college basketball where Caitlin Clark dropped 49 points on Michigan in a 106 to 98 win and at the same time surpassed. Kelsey Plum for the NCAA Division I women's record for most points scored all time. I mean, just trying to enjoy every single second, um, you know, hugging my teammates, hugging my coaches, because I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for these fans, for my family over in the stands. Um, it takes a village to become, you know, something like this and build something like this, and Coach Bluter's been doing it for 20-plus years, and I'm just lucky to be a small part of it, and she lets me be Caitlin, and um, for that, I'm forever grateful. An inspiration for all Clarks there, speaking ESPN's Holly Rowe after the game, who also now just hits 99 points shy of breaking the men's all-time scoring record. Yeah, well, you know why she lets you be Caitlin? Because you're pretty awesome at basketball. You're hitting logo threes. Right. <laughs> just keep, <laughs> I mean, like, do what you do, Caitlin. Go ahead, throw it up. <laughs> right. 748 on Wisconsin's Morning News. Nukes in space. News this week leaked purposefully by House Intelligence Committee Chair Mike Turner that the U.S. has information Russia is developing a nuclear weapon that could be deployed in space. The White House now trying to ease fears. Let me get you up to date with ABC News' Andy Field. The White House urging everyone, don't panic about news Russia is trying to put a satellite-destroying weapon in orbit. We are not talking about a weapon that can be used to attack human beings or cause physical destruction. 
here on Earth. Spokesperson John Kirby saying the White House is briefing members of Congress about what it knows about Russia's space weapon plans. Andy Field, ABC News, Washington. Live with us from Washington this morning is ABC News consultant John Cohen, former counterterrorism coordinator with the Department of Homeland Security. John, thanks so much for taking a little bit of time with us this morning. Sure, nice to be with you. So we heard from John Kirby there, spokesman for the National Security Council. His point is Russia is not aiming to drop nukes on the U.S. from space with this technology. That said, taking out on any sort of broad-scale communication satellites, I mean, from our financial systems to the fact that you'd have at least two generations of Americans who might not be able to find their way home without GPS navigation. I mean, the effects of that type of an attack could be disastrous, could they not? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it is important that um, the the intelligence community assesses that this capability would not be able to be used to conduct a, a nuclear attack in the U.S., but you really have to look at this circumstance within the broader context of what Russia has been trying to do over the last decade, decade and a half. I mean, Vladimir Putin's objective is to restore the territorial boundaries and geopolitical influence of the Soviet Union. He wants to retake territories that have been free democracies for decades. He wants to extend Russia's influence across the globe. He knows standing in his way is the United States and NATO. Um, And he also recognizes that he can't compete militarily in a direct conflict with the U.S. and NATO currently, and he can't compete economically. So what has he been doing? He's been engaging in a multi-year, what we call hybrid or asymmetric war with the U.S., where he's been using a combination of cyber attacks against government and critical infrastructure information systems. He's been engaging in information warfare, where he's exploiting divisive issues to undermine confidence in the U.S. government and disrupt our relationship with NATO allies. He has been disrupting elections in Europe and in the United States so that um, officials who have friendlier views towards Russia will be in power. He's expanded his military presence and presence through groups like the Wagner Group um, in Africa and the Middle East, who've been engaging in conflict against U.S. allies. He's engaged in a number of provocative acts with his warships and his air force, where they've been incursions in U.S. airspace uh, and or um, interactions with U.S. uh, warships. So, I mean, this is part of a pattern, and when we hear folks sort of describe NATO as not being uh, of value to the U.S. and Russia as not being an enemy to the U.S., it's just absolutely inconsistent with the reality of the world. John Cohen is with us this morning. He's a former counterterrorism coordinator at DHS. John, is it damaging to our national security that this was made public to some degree by Congressman Turner? You know, we do live in a free and open society. We expect, especially for me as a a reporter in my business, I expect our government to be transparent with us. Uh, But I grant you, there are things in the interest of national security that are okay to keep secret, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I have to tell you, on a personal basis, I feel kind of torn, right? Um, You know, I've worked for 40 years in law enforcement, national security, homeland security. I understand the critical importance of safeguarding um, classified information and national security secrets. But we're really kind of in a unique inflection point in this country right now, where we actually have people in government people uh, in in the media, quite frankly, who are painting this just inaccurate picture. And we're we're sitting at a point in history where 
you know, literally millions of Americans are believing conspiracy theories that they're hearing and have come to believe that NATO is a problem and that Russia or China or North Korea or Iran don't pose a threat to the U.S. So in this case, I think it's really important that as we're having these political debates on Capitol Hill about funding for Ukraine, um, you know, our relationship with our NATO allies, that the American people have a accurate understanding of what is actually going on and the the national security threat that Russia actually does pose to the United States uh, so that as they are engaging with, you know, their representatives in Washington or in the state houses, they have an accurate appreciation of what some of this rhetoric actually mean and could mean um, for U.S. security. John Cohen, ABC News consultant and former counterterrorism coordinator at DHS. Appreciate your time this morning, John. Fascinating. Nice to be with you. I mean, to his point, right, you got it. We expect government to be transparent and tell us things sometimes in our own best interest. They sh- they do need to keep some secrets and not tell everybody everything that we know. But also, man, misinformation is a big issue as well. Of course. You got to walk that line. I'm glad that guys like him are on that wall for us, though. I'll tell you that much.